Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher here at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Daniel chapter 7. I think I mentioned in the Gospel of Mark series that in a format like this, when you're working your way chapter by chapter through whole books of the Bible, there will almost always be one chapter in every book that is going to be a real challenge. And when you're working your way through the book of Daniel, it's chapter 7 and maybe chapter 9 as well. These are very complicated chapters. And there is some disagreement here as to how these chapters should be interpreted. First thing we should probably see here in chapter 7 is that we're starting a new section in the book of Daniel. I I mentioned before that Daniel has two sections. The first six chapters are basically historical in the sense that they relate narratives about Daniel and his three friends. They, They tell us about their efforts to be faithful to God in a hostile and foreign land. But then in chapter 7, we begin something entirely different. The last six chapters in Daniel contain dreams and visions that speak about God's sovereign plans for the future. So we move from fairly straightforward court narratives to vivid and complicated apocalyptic imagery. And we just need to be aware of that change and we need to conduct ourselves accordingly. Just to put this in street-level terms for just a second, obviously you understand that you read a newspaper differently than you read a poem. You read a poem differently than you read a receipt. And you read a receipt differently than you read a joke. Each of these types of literature has a certain set of interpretive rules associated with them. And so it is with biblical literature. The fancy name for all of this is genre. And it refers to understanding what sort of literature you are reading so that you can read it in the way that the original author intended for you to read it. Apocalyptic literature tends to deal in visions, dreams, imagery, and symbols. It is very visual. So in a sense, it's like described video. Daniel 7 to 12 is like a series of videos that Daniel saw as dreams and visions, and now he is describing those videos to us. So there's a two-stage process here, obviously. We have to first make sure that we are seeing what Daniel was seeing. And then we have to make sure that we are understanding it the way Daniel intended for us to understand it. I mean, just, just imagine for a second that God gave Daniel a dream in which he saw children in the 21st century riding on roller coasters at Disney World. Daniel would then attempt to describe that to the reader using whatever forms and images and words he could muster. And then the reader would have to first assess whether they are seeing in their mind what Daniel was seeing in his mind. That's step one. Then the reader has to figure out whether he or she is interpreting those symbols the way they are intended to be interpreted. Now, if that sounds complicated to you, good. It is complicated, and it's complicated enough that we need to be cautious and careful with our interpretation. Folks tend to get into trouble when they trust themselves too much, not when they trust the text 
too much, but when they trust themselves too much. Whatever the text means, it is right and true and helpful and good. But when you are dealing with apocalyptic text, you have to at least be open to the possibility that you might have made a mistake in your hearing, your seeing, or your understanding. And I am very aware of that as we begin to engage this particular text. We will do our best, and we will trust the Holy Spirit to help us. Let's begin reading at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, let me just pause here for a second. First thing we need to see is that the dream chapters are operating with a different chronology than the narrative chapters, meaning that chapter 7 actually takes place before chapter 5. We, we are back before the handwriting on the wall, right? This is before Daniel was dragged out of retirement. In his retirement, Daniel, the dream interpreter, begins to have his own dreams. And his dreams appear to be extrapolations and continuations of Nebuchadnezzar's dream way back in chapter 2. So it actually might be worth going back to listen to the podcast on chapter 2 before finishing up this program because everything Daniel dreams interprets and expands upon what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. All right, let's get back into the text. Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Now, the four winds of heaven most likely represents God's providential direction over human affairs. God stirs up the nations. God turns the hearts of the kings. And here we see God stirring up the great sea. In apocalyptic literature, the sea sometimes represents evil, and sometimes it represents the peoples or the nations. It's probably a bit of both here. God is stirring the nation such that one evil empire begins to devour another, which will be followed by another and another until finally they are all destroyed by the coming of the eternal kingdom. Now, each of the four great beasts corresponds with one of the four empires associated with the great statue in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. The beasts are kingdoms, and as we learn later in this chapter, they're also kings. We jump back into the text at verse 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth 
speaking great things. Now, in terms of the four beasts, we should identify the empires here with the same empires we identified in chapter 2. If the order in chapter 2 was Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, then that order makes sense here as well. The lion with eagle's wings certainly makes sense as an image for Babylon. That the beast lost its wings and had to walk like a man reminds us of the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar during his strange seven-year illness. The second beast, the bear, is a fitting image for Medo-Persia. We are told that it was raised up on one side. Well, the Medo part of the Medo-Persian Empire was the smaller part, the weaker part, the lower part, and it was eventually subsumed within the Persian part, which was the higher part. And the Medo-Persian Empire certainly did devour. The third beast was like a leopard with wings. And that's a great symbol for the Greek Empire, which was known for its lightning-fast cavalry tactics and its incredibly fast and efficient troop deployments. That it had four heads seems to speak of the four future kingdoms that came out of the Greek Empire after, after it collapsed and broke into pieces upon the death of Alexander. Finally, the fourth beast then, here as in chapter 2, would represent Rome. Once again, the imagery is appropriate. We think of the legions with their iron-studded shoes stamping and crushing upon more primitive tribes and peoples. The ten horns there might represent ten rulers of the Roman Empire or ten subsequent nation powers arising from Rome. That is, ten successor states. Commentators differ on this particular detail. The little horn would then be either a Roman emperor or the leader of one of the ten successor states. He has a mouth that speaks great and arrogant things. Verse 9 begins with a change of setting. The vision of the beasts describes what is happening on the earth, one evil power leading to another. Verse 9 tells us what is happening in heaven. The text says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. You get the impression here that heaven is preparing to assert its rule over all the cosmos. Thrones are being placed. The Ancient of Days takes his seat. Right away you realize that this is by far the more important story. It doesn't actually really matter what is happening down on the earth. It doesn't matter who is in charge down here, whether the Babylonians or the Medo-Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. They are playing on a much smaller board. What matters is who is ruling and reigning in the heavens. And what is decided up there will land like a nuclear bomb down here. So we want to see how that plays out. And, and, and in that sense, we see God sitting and opening books. He is seeing everything. He is judging 
everything such that when he acts, it will be right and it will stand. In verse 11, we are interrupted now by the arrogant noise of an insignificant earthly king. He speaks words too high for him and he is immediately killed and thrown into the fire. The other beasts, the other kingdoms, continue on for a season, but we understand that they too will pass under the rod of the only king who matters. The vision continues in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now the basic message here is fairly straightforward. The beast is thrown down, and the Son of Man is raised up. He is given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all people shall serve him, and his dominion shall be an everlasting dominion. This is the stone from chapter 2, not cut by human hands, that descends from heaven and strikes the kingdoms of men and becomes the greatest of all mountains. This is an extrapolation upon what we saw in Nebuchadnezzar's dream way back in chapter 2. The Son of Man is the stone. He is Jesus. Now, interpreters will disagree as to then whether we should understand this as referring to Jesus' first coming, which would then incline us to understand the little horn as Rome and as perhaps a particular Caesar of Rome, or whether we should see this as referring more to the second coming of Christ. And the horn then as referring to the leader of one of the ten subsequent kingdoms to arise out of the leaf mold of fallen Rome. Now, some might even say that it is both. After all, part of the value in the apocalyptic genre is that it allows us to preserve mystery and to speak of things that cannot be precisely understood. Trumper Longman III, for example, says that apocalyptic imagery allows us to preserve mystery about ideas that are ultimately beyond our comprehension. I think that's a helpful reminder. The, the main point of this vision, however, is the same regardless of whether you land here or there on the particulars. The main point is that the Son of Man will be lifted up and every evil human power will be brought low. Thanks be to God. We jump back into the text at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Now, the ESV here has kings, and the NIV has kingdoms. Both are possible. Perhaps both are intended. Perhaps we should think of four kingdoms and their archetypal kings, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, Medo-Persia and Cyrus, Greece and Alexander, Rome and Caesar. Verse 18 says, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. 
As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Now, these verses incline me towards thinking of the little horn as a future ruler of a kingdom that comes out of the leaf mold of fallen Rome. The text says that the little horn made war with the saints until the Ancient of Days came. Well, to state the obvious, the persecution of the saints continues to this day, and if anything, it's more intense than ever. So I'm inclined to see the fulfillment of this as future, as referring to the second coming of Christ. Therefore, I think the text is saying that a future ruler will persecute the saints and prevail over them. That, that is, he will appear to have won and to have defeated and destroyed the church until the time of judgment when he will be thrown down and the saints will possess the kingdom. Verse 23 says, Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now we should stop here and talk about these times. There are, there are lots of symbolic numbers in apocalyptic imagery. This number, time, times, and half a time is obviously symbolic. Many take it in the sense of a year, years, and half a year, or three and a half years. And we meet some version of this number multiple times in the book of Revelation. Most commentators believe it refers to a short, intense, but limited time of tribulation. What we sometimes refer to as the great tribulation, or in other uh, systems, as Satan's little season. It is a time when the devil's leash is lengthened and he is permitted to harass the saints. But it does not last forever. Look at verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So Daniel is alarmed, and with good reason. Even though history ends well from the perspective of the saints, the path to dominion leads through a long valley of evil, oppression, darkness, and persecution. But in the end, God wins. We win. The saints will have dominion in the kingdom of the Most High God. That is the end of the matter. There are still visions and dreams yet to come, but that is the end of the matter. Thanks be to God. 
Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on our Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into your search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.